Father, we, uh, we are thankful for you. We are thankful for your word. And we pray that you would send your spirit now to be our teacher, to open your word. We pray, I ask that you would remove distractions from here. Very easy to be distracted by kids or phone or what we're doing next or any number of things. Pray that you would dis- help us to discipline our minds now and to, to, to realize that we are now before your word and this is such a critical moment. We pray that you would remove distractions, that you would leave us with informed minds, enlarged hearts, and bent wills to do whatever you would ask us to do as we follow you. We pray that you would wrestle us out of our comfort zones and that you would conform us more into the, the image of your Son and in accordance with Scripture that we, would be, that we would live and conduct ourselves on the basis of your word as a church, that we would be formed by that, shaped by that, and that we would follow you and be willing to reorient our lives around your word because you're worthy of that. And so help me, give me wisdom as I preach, give me clarity and give me help from your spirit. I pray that you would come now, spirit, and you would preach to our church for its good and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we continue our series, Worship Matters. Um, And that title, in fact, comes from a book that was written by Bob Coughlin on the subject of worship. And so I want to take a moment up front uh, to just thank Bob for his excellent contribution to the subject of worship um, with his outstanding book. Bob has been a source of great encouragement and help to our staff Uh, Not only in this series, but really just in general, uh, he's got a great mind and God has really blessed him and helped him with his subject of worship. So I encourage you, if you've not read that book, Worship Matters, I encourage you to look at that, pick that up and read it. And uh, you'll see a slightly different perspective than what we're preaching, but that's good and that's healthy. And I encourage you to look at that. Well, today we come to another tension uh, in this series. We're on the second to last, so there's only two more. This one, and then Pastor Mark will finish next week uh, with worship as every day and worship as an event. So Sunday, and Mark will go there next week. But the second to last one that we're doing with that we're dealing with this morning is a tension that tends to evoke a lot of emotion in people. All right, it's something that it's a tension that it's this tension between worship that is rooted, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, and worship that is relevant. And my task this morning is to help us understand from Scripture that worship, if it's going to be pleasing to God, will contain both these elements of rooted and relevant. And so before we go any further, let me just start off by defining what I mean by those terms. First of all, by rooted, I mean worship that is anchored in the truth of Scripture, not the ideas of our age. In the context of the church, then, it's a worship service that has not only the Bible regulating that worship service, but that worship has historical precedents behind it. In other words, like we're not just coming up with stuff, but, but we're standing on the shoulders of centuries and centuries of Christ followers who have worshipped him. So we're not reinventing worship. We follow the Bible And we also follow the example of the church that we have handed down to us through church history. 
which makes us feel, in, in one sense, makes us feel very safe in an appropriate way because we're not uh, on an island by ourselves, but we're following in the paths of God's people for generations. So that's what it means for us to be rooted. Now, relevant. By relevant, I mean taking the biblical elements of worship and presenting them in language in language and forms that people can understand. Pursuing relevance means presenting timeless truths in a timely fashion. It, it's the goal is to communicate God's truth in ways that people can understand and grab hold of so that it carries force with people immediately. It, they resonate with it. There's a force to it. It makes sense to them. It's immediately accessible to them. So both things are necessary. The fact that we are rooted and relevant and our worship as a church must be both. And if we have one without the other, then we will go off course. For example, worship that is relevant but not rooted is unsafe. But worship that is rooted but not relevant is unloving. And so in both cases, we err. And we want to be, as a church, we desire to be both theologically robust and rooted and to be relationally sensitive and loving. So we want both of those realities to characterize our worship. All right, so let's look at both those truths. And to do that, we're going to be in two portions of Scripture this morning. Uh, So first turn, if you haven't already, to Colossians chapter 2, 6 and 7. And we're going to do a little exposition of this text. And then we're going to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But for a moment, let's just stay right here in Colossians chapter 2. Now, as you're turning, let me just clarify that the focus of this message really has to do with worship, our, our worship as a church as a whole, it's not really just reflecting on the music aspect of our worship, but really everything. When we're talking about the church being rooted, we're talking about the church being relevant, we're talking about really the whole thing, all right? Now, it's essential, let's start with this idea of rooted. It's essential for us to be rooted. When we plan our Sunday services, uh, both as pastors or Jonathan when he's planning the worship set, um, we don't have to start from scratch or we don't have to reinvent the wheel um, we, and neither do we have to be restricted to the present. But we have a history behind us that informs how we structure ourselves. And not only that, but we get to dip into that history and we get to stand on it in an amazing way. We choose as a church to remember where we came from. In other words, we want to be conscious of the fact of knowing really where we came from. How did we get here? How did we end up, not, I don't mean at Heritage Baptist Church, but I mean in the tradition, in the, in, the, in, the, in the mold, in the way that we are. How did we get here? We want to remember that. We want to tell God's story of redemption from multiple vantage points. And so we dip into church history. We take the songs of yesterday, in part, and we pass them on to a future generation. And that principle um, is seen in Scripture. Psalm chapter 102, for example, uh, verse 18. Listen to this word. It's interesting. It says, let this be recorded. And by this, he refers to the song that he's writing, the psalm. Let this be recorded for a generation yet to come so that a generation yet to be created may praise the Lord. It's really interesting, but that's an example of taking a psalm and the psalmist is saying, hey, like, I don't want this psalm just to be for you but I want it to be for a future generation. And here's what he says, that's not even created yet. So I want this to endure. I want this to stand the test of time. 
there are some things, obviously, in our worship that are really, really ancient. Really, really ancient. I mean, it goes all the way back, hopefully, to the early church. Hopefully, we're not doing stuff that, uh, that, that has no example in, in history at all. I mean, there are things, obviously, that are going to change and be different in our modern era. Technology and sound and lights and things of that nature. But in terms of the elements of worship, those are things that have been there since the beginning of the church. Bob Coughlin says it this way. He says, throughout history, liturgies have helped regulate the theological diet of a congregation and to protect it from the winds of errant doctrine that sweep through every generation. A repeated liturgy that is biblically based can help people rehearse and remember the story of redemption each time the church gathers. I really like that. really like what he says, this idea of a repeated liturgy. And, and for that reason, next month, one of the things that we want to do as a church is on the first and third Sunday of next month, we want to set aside some time in our worship service to actually recite some historical creeds and confessions to remind ourselves what exactly we believe, what we stand on. And we want to do that for two reasons. One, we want to honor really the centrality of the gospel by declaring that together And secondly, we want to do that because we want to consciously engage with our past. In a sense, we're having a conversation with Christians from generations previous and saying, hey, you're you're dead and gone now, but we believe what you all believed and we're with you and we're working this out together now. And so we want to do that next month. You can look forward to that. But God, hear this, has not only done great things in the past, as you know, he's doing great things now. Which means that, but because of that principle, we also want to provide an opportunity on the second and fourth Sundays to give you an opportunity as church members to express your praise and your thanks to God. And the way that we're going to do that is we are going to put a couple of microphones on the floor And we want to give you an opportunity on that second and fourth Sunday to pray short prayers of praise and thanksgiving to God during a portion of our worship service. Now that's different, but you know, it recognizes a very important principle in scripture. And that is the principle of the priesthood of all believers. And I just want to say that as pastors, one of the things that we've been thinking through is this principle of what I would call Multiple participation for mutual edification, all right? Multiple participation for mutual edification, meaning that all of God's people participate in the worship of God in a meaningful way so that all, the whole church, is to be built up and edified. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. We do not believe then, what I mean by that is we don't believe in a reformed priesthood. Which means we don't believe in a guy who sort of is standing in the appointed place behind maybe a pulpit like this. And he is mediating to God's people for God. He's not speaking to God's people on behalf of God. And and God's people don't speak to him so that he can go back to God. I mean, that happens when a man preaches But in terms of just generally how the worship of God is conducted, we don't believe in that. The priesthood... That era is gone. The priesthood of all believers, God expects all of his believers to worship him. So it doesn't mean that there's not a leader. It doesn't mean that there's not pastors preaching. It just means that there's, an, there's a principle in scripture that we need to recognize. 
This principle is taught very clearly in 1 Corinthians 14, 26. And we want to honor that as a church. And so when we say our worship is rooted, what we mean is that worship is to be guided by the truth of Scripture, not the ideas of our age, which means when we gather for worship, it's essential that we follow two principles. Two things. Number one, we must do everything God requires. Now, that should be pretty clear to us. I mean, there are certain things in Scripture that we're commanded to do in our worship. We call these the elements of worship. They are preaching, baptism, observation of the Lord's Supper, prayer, reading Scripture, giving financially, singing, making music as we saw in Colossians chapter 3 or as we saw in Ephesians. This is, this, these are the elements but second, so we're to, we're to do everything God has commanded. But second, we must not do anything that God forbids. So that's the negative side of it. And that should be obvious as well. Is that we see an example of this in Deuteronomy chapter 12, a really interesting passage where God is looking at the worship of Israel. And one of the interesting things he says there is he says, God looks down and he says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. He observes their worship. He says, you should not do that. And which is, is, is a very important point because there are things that churches do in worship today that are dishonoring to God. I mean, it just is. And so we want to obviously avoid that as a church. So these are the two major principles that are to guide us. Now, beyond that, we need to say this as well, is that we are free. Beyond that, we are free to do anything else that's in accord with biblical principle. Biblical principles like Worship that is God-centered, worship that is intelligible, worship that is sensitive to non-Christians, worship that is unselfish, worship that is edifying, worship that is orderly, worship that is, as we saw last week, missional in its focus as well. So these are to be some guiding principles. And, and so there's a lot of freedom and flexibility as long as we are adherent to those biblical principles. Now, the second thing that we mean, so that's what we first thing we mean when we say rooted. All right. The second thing that we mean when we say that is that we are a church who is anchored in the truth of God's word. We're rooted in the word of God. We see this in Colossians chapter two, verses six and seven. All right. Let's read that again. Paul says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Having been firmly rooted and now built up in him. And established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Paul is here, he's urging the church to persevere. Paul is concerned because what has happened in Colossae, or something's happened where they're beginning to be influenced, almost like the Galatians, but in a very different way. They're beginning to be influenced that the gospel and the message that they had been preached was not enough. That there was some higher learning. There was some higher system that they needed to adhere to. They needed to open up their minds. They needed to broaden out. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You're going to stay. We're going to stay focused on Christ the Lord. I want you to walk in him. You've been rooted in Christ. And so I want you to be built up in him and to be established in your faith. And Paul encourages them. So the question that we ask ourselves is this. Okay, so how do we stay anchored as a church? Or how do we stay centered on the gospel? And Paul answers that question for us in verse 7. What he does is he gives us a method, if you will. Let me, let me just give you a little bit of grammar, all right? Um, grammar's important. 
Paul uses four words here. Uh, They're participles in Greek, which are action words. And Paul uses four of them. Very important. And what those four words do is they modify the main verb in verse 6. So just look at verse 6. Verse 6, the main verb is to walk in him. All right. Now, these four words in verse 7 are, are these words. Rooted, built up, established, and abounding. Your translation might say overflowing. All right. Now, these words modify the word to walk in him. And they describe how we are to walk. Somebody says, how are you supposed to walk in Christ? Answer, you're supposed to walk by being rooted, built up, established, and abounding. These words also are in the passive voice. All right. Now, grammatically, what does that mean? That means that something is being done to us. Uh, we're not doing it. We're not performing the action. But in three of these words, something is being done to us. The first three. They describe what God is doing. What, it, what, what he's saying, what Paul is saying with this is that it is God's grace that has rooted us in Christ. It is God's grace that is presently building us up in him. And it is God's grace that is establishing us in that faith. And then the only action, the only active word in there is abounding in thanksgiving. That's your job. Because all that's true, your job then is to overflow with thanksgiving. So that, that's really kind of the technicalities of the text. And you can see why that's important because it makes a real difference in how we understand it. Now, just let's look at those four words quickly. First, the word uh, rooted in verse 7. Paul uses the past tense. Paul is saying, you have been rooted. Having been rooted, Paul says. Paul's saying, he's talking about your conversion. When you were converted, you were like a plant that was moved from like really bad soil into life-giving soil. You were transplanted. God planted you in Christ, which means we draw our life and our strength from Jesus. Just like roots go down and they get their nourishment from the soil, we draw everything we need from Jesus. Our roots go down in him. And as the roots go down and down and down in Jesus, we find life and vitality and strength and growth. And I was just thinking by way of application this week is how deep do our roots go? Because it's one thing to be rooted. It's another thing for those roots to go deep. And it really matters the depth of your roots because the depth of your roots in Christ will determine your stability to stand when the storm comes. When when a death of a child or a loved one, when cancer, news of cancer breaks, when the marriage is on the rocks, how deep are your roots in Jesus? That makes a huge difference. That's why we have to be gospel-centered Christians. That's why our church has to go deep in Jesus. That's where we get our strength. Shallow rooting will not cut it. Paul says we're to be rooted in Christ. We're to be built up. We're to be established in the faith. And let me just make this application, which means that's a community project. Like, I can't just do that on my own. I mean, I can read the Bible and pray, but I need some guys pushing me. Joe was just up here talking to us about men. We need some guys in our lives saying, let's be men. Let's step up to the plate. Let's be the men that God has called us to be. And we need that for each other in life. We need to help each other. I just want to keep encouraging you that if you're not in a gospel community group, that you will join one. Because there, there is almost 
a, a spirit of pride that would say, you know, I don't need that. Like, I don't have time for that. But here's what I want to challenge you with, okay, lovingly. I want to, I want to encourage you to join one. Someone might say, well, Jonathan, here's the thing. I've got to be honest with you, all right? I don't get much out of it. Like, those people slow me down. All right, well, let, let's think about that. Even if you're right that they slow you down, have you considered speeding them up? Have you considered sitting beside them and saying, you know what, I'm going to bring my maturity to this group and I'm going to help them grow. There are some younger Christians here and I've been taught a lot. I've learned a lot in my Christian life. I have a lot of wisdom. I have a lot to share. I've been married for 10 to 15 to 20 to 30 years. You know, I've been taught theology, been taught the word of God. I want to help speed them up. I just want to encourage you to think about that. All right, the second word is built up. The second participle that Paul uses is in the present tense and it's translated being built up in him. Which points to a certain increase in growth that's happening in our lives as we walk with Christ. We are presently, to encourage you, being built up in him. And again, this is God's activity in your life. The image is that of a house or a building that's being constructed. Every day on my way to work, I pass uh, a construction project. They're building a Goodwill store right over there uh, by Walmart. And every day I pass by and I can see like there is stuff happening. I'll leave for work and when I come home from work, windows are up, you know, another side of the wall is up and you really see progress that's made. And so this is the idea here. We're, We're under construction and this And here's the great news, is that your construction project's not finished yet. I mean, I'm glad. When I get up in the morning and I look at myself and my construction project, I say, we got a long way to go. And I'm really glad to know that this is not the final product. But yet God is at work in my life. He's building me up. And and here's the thing. God's word says that one day we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He will finish this project. God is at work. I need to hear that truth. All right, so hang on. Don't be unduly discouraged about where you're at. Know that God is not quitting on your construction project. He's still at work. Third, we are being established in him. This word being established, it carries with it the idea of being confirmed or being made sure of something. To be established in the faith is to become more certain, more sure of something. Now, the question here is, what are we becoming more certain about? Well, what does he say in the verse? He says more about being established in the faith. Now, I believe that what he means by that is the faith is that body of truth that's been handed down to us in the scriptures. Say, well, how do you know that? Well, I think because of the next phrase. He says, which you have been taught. In other words, this isn't a subjective faith thing. This is what you've been taught. This has been handed down to you. So I want you to be, I want you to be affirmed in that. I want you to be made more sure of that. I want you to be established in the scriptures. In other words, our experience of believing gets stronger, not weaker as we engage with God's word. And God uses his word to deepen our confidence, especially in Christ who he is and what he has done and what he's going to do in your life. And he uses the word to reorient our lives around Jesus so that we become increasingly thrilled with Christ and increasingly convinced that Jesus really is everything that we need. And all of this happens 
as God's truth is being established in our hearts, confirmed, made sure in our lives. All right, these are great words. We're talking about worship that's rooted. Can't you see it here? It's we're established, we're firmly established, we're rooted, we're being built up. There's something that's been handed down to us. We're formed by it, we're shaped by it. I mean, there's a real weight here that you can feel, all right? And then his response is, the only fitting response is your job, which is thanksgiving, overflow with thanksgiving. If if, if God has rooted me in Christ, if he is presently building me up, if he is presently establishing me in my faith and confirming that to me, praise God. Thank you, Lord. And you overflow with thanksgiving and gratitude. So here's the thing. If we're going to be a church that's rooted and built up and established and overflowing with gratitude, we have got to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. Let me give you four ways to do that. These, these are four things I want to encourage us to work on. Number one, we need to grow in our appreciation of the majesty of Christ. And that the majesty, really, even the deity of Christ. We must grow in our certainty that he is God. He is the eternal God. Everything exists because Jesus has made it. He sustains it. He controls it. He is Lord. He is over it all. Colossians 1 16 and 17, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We need to become convinced of that reality. That affects how you live. It's all for him. He's holding it all together. He's before all things. Number two, we need to grow in our convictions about the humanity of Jesus. Not just the deity, but the humanity in particular. Let's grow in our certainty and persuasion about his sympathy for us. He's a real man in heaven right now. His name is Jesus and he cares for you. You just think about that right now. We're not talking about a God who's dead. We're not talking about a man who's dead, but there's a real man, a man in heaven. A real man, flesh and bones. There's a man in heaven and he cares for you. Why does he care for you? Because he sympathizes with you. Why does he sympathize with you? Because he walked in your shoes. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's awesome. Church, we should come to prayer expecting sympathy, expecting that Jesus will understand us and he will respond to us in mercy and kindness. We need renewed conviction about our sympathetic friend who's in heaven right now. Third, we need to grow in our understanding of the sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection. 
doesn't get much more foundational than this. Everything that once separated us from God has been taken away in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are no longer enemies, but we are sons and daughters. Now, here's the question. How well do you understand that truth? Let me ask you this question. Here, here's a little test, all right? How well do you understand the gospel that you've been adopted? Here's a little test. When you sin against God, how long does it take you to discern the smile of God again? When you sin against God, do you go into a funk? Do you go to, into a sort of a self-absorbed, uh, checked out kind of funk, a depression that lasts for a long time? Listen, get up, repent of your sin meaningfully, but remember this, that God has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. We must grow in our conviction of the sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection. Number four, we must grow in our understanding of the love of Christ. God's word He's doing a work of building us up in Christ. And here's the thing. It's not, this work of building us up in Christ is not primarily a work of your growth, your godliness, your holiness, your effort, although that has to be there. But God's work of building us up in Christ is chiefly and primarily a work that brings us into an expanding conviction of his love for us. His kindness is what leads us to repentance. It's an acknowledgement, an understanding of his great love for you. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about my love for Christ, I think about my responsibility toward God. When I think about love in Christ, I think about what I have done or where I have failed. But what I should be thinking about more often is not how little I love him or how capricious that love is, but I should be thinking about how perfect and how constant and how forever his love is for me. That makes a huge difference because it changes your whole outlook. You get up in the morning and you begin to reflect on how perfect and forever and great his love is for me. That changes my whole day. That makes my mood when I know that. Here's the thing. God knows the absolute worst about me and yet he loves me as though I were a perfect son. So let's think about this. Paul says... Here's what he prays, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And this is my prayer for you and for me, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted, here's that word rooted and grounded in what? In love. Maybe have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why? So that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. What an incredible verse. I've often wondered what in the world does that mean to be filled with the fullness of God? Hopefully we'll find out next month when we get into Ephesians series. But something, there's something about meditating on the love of God that fills you with the fullness of God. So I want to be filled with the fullness of God. So I need to meditate on the love of God. So that's what it means in short for us to be rooted as a church. All right. Ultimately, we are rooted in Christ. He's the essence of it. We are being built up and established in the faith. And as a result, we overflow with gratitude. Our faith is a rooted faith. Now, secondly, our faith is a relevant faith. When we use the word relevant, 
We're gonna, I mean, we're just, this is a radical shift of gears, okay? All right? Now, when we use the word relevant, we're talking about communicating biblical truths in language and forms that people can understand. So it's it's very a simple thing. It's not like a complex deal. It's very simple. It's learning how to speak into our culture in ways that are helpful and accessible. And what we're really talking about here is the art of contextualization or biblical accommodation. I'll explain those words. Let me define those words and then I'll show you where this principle is kind of worked out in scripture. At this point, I want, I'm going to lean a little bit more heavy on the work of two of my friends. One, uh, Dr. Bob Gonzalez, who's done some really sharp thinking on this, and as well as Tom Askell. And both these guys have really served the church well. So I'm pulling from some of their concepts here. The verb to contextualize simply means to put into context. So we're just, we're just taking something that may not be readily understandable to a person... And we're putting that in a context they can understand. It's the ability to take a message and communicate it in understandable ways in multiple contexts in order to enhance understanding and accessibility without compromising the message in any way. Now, I'm using an illustration. If I asked you to stand up and preach a sermon on the sovereignty of God from Romans 9 today, but then tomorrow you have to go to a prison and speak on the exact same subject to prisoners. You're going to accommodate that message. You're not going to change the message. The truth's going to be the same. You're going to change your vocabulary. You're going to change your dress. You're going to change how you communicate that. Hopefully. <laughs> it would be wise for you to... When you speak to children, you know, you can't talk to them the same way you speak to adults. You contextualize Tim Keller defines it this way. I, I've not found a better definition of contextualization than this. It's so helpful. Keller says, contextualization is not giving people what they want to hear. It's giving people the Bible's answers, which they may not want to hear at all, to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking in language and forms they can understand. Now, that's a mouthful, but it's extremely helpful because people tend to hear the word contextualization as a bad word. But when we understand it biblically, we see that it's an act of love, not compromise. See, the question at hand is, how do we preach timeless truths in a timely fashion? Or another way to say it is, how do we reach out without selling out? Because a lot of people are selling out. So how do we avoid that, but still reach out? How do we show love without selling out? How do we become accessible without compromising? And that's not always easy. But that's the question at hand. See, here's the problem. People assume that when forms and methods change, the style, the feel, the look, when that stuff changed... People think that the truth is being compromised and that does not necessarily, that's not necessarily so. One does not necessitate the others. It's important that we make a distinction between the message and how that message is presented or how that message is packaged. We're not at liberty to change the message, but hear this, we are at liberty and even encouraged to think carefully about how it's presented. All right, I like this. One of our founding fathers put it this way. 
and I don't typically turn to founding fathers, but this is a wise thing that he says here. He says, on matters of style, swim with the current. But on matters of principle, stand like a rock. I, I, think, he, I think he just cuts it right there. He hits it. He nails it. On matters of style, swim with the current. But on matters of principle, stand like a rock. Churches, hear me, churches should not pride themselves in being culturally irrelevant, out of date, old-fashioned in their style of worship. There's nothing to boast in about that. They may argue from a position of piety. Oh, well, this is holy. This is pious. But it's not. In many cases, it's just prudish and unloving. We need to understand that it's possible Hear this, this is important, to be deeply rooted theologically and confessionally with a rich liturgy and hymnody and yet be extremely relevant with our form and style and presentation. Those things are not mutually exclusive. You can pull them all together. The problem, however, with an uncontextualized ministry is that it fails to distinguish between biblical principles for ministry and cultural methods for implementing those principles. What it does is it clings to dated, ineffective methods in the name of tradition rather than being willing to be guided by gospel flexibility. But the Bible encourages us to be wise in our presentation of the gospel. In other words, you don't get to be a jerk. You don't get to be foolish And you don't get to stand on a pious principle in order to be foolish. We're called to be wise. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, Christians and churches exist to perpetuate the gospel. That's our purpose, folks. We're not here just for ourselves. We're here to perpetuate the gospel. Now, I recognize on a Sunday morning, there's largely Christians that are gathered here. And that means something. That matters. But our purpose is to declare the gospel. So Keller says... Christians in churches exist to perpetuate the gospel and should be willing to change their cultural forms if they are not the most beneficial for achieving that goal. Churches must examine and be willing to adjust their musical styles, websites, aesthetics, acoustics, programming, and just about anything but their Bible in an effort to effectively communicate the gospel to as many people as possible in cultures around them. Now, statements like that highlight why this this conversation is so uncomfortable for people. Reality is people don't like that because what it means is change means more change. And that drives people crazy. I I don't want it. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. And here's the thing. Some people are just flat out unwilling to adjust and make the change. They're just flat out unwilling to budge even for the sake of the gospel because it gets in the way of their preference or preferred style of worship. In his book, Worship in Spirit and Truth, John Frame says, let's turn to a Reformed Presbyterian. He says, we must distinguish between what God requires and what we're comfortable with. Between scriptural standards and mere individual preferences. And in matters of individual preferences, we must be willing to consider others ahead of ourselves. And that's why Pastor Mark showed us last week that worship is not just for God and the church but it's for the world. And because of that, we should be willing to make principled sacrifices, okay? I'm using all my words carefully. Principled sacrifices. Not faddish, trendy, cool, cutesy changes, 
but principled sacrifices if, hear me, it will serve the cause of the gospel among the lost. Now, that's, I recognize, really easy to say and extremely hard to live out. It's hard for me. There, there, let, let me just encur- tell, encourage you by this. There are things that we do as a church that is not my flavor or desire. There's lots of things, all right? But I know it's good for the gospel. That may not be what I would want or desire, but I know that it's not about me. It's about a broader context. And because of that, we should be willing to make these principled sacrifices. And, and, and a refusal to do so reveals something about your gospel flexibility. Let me give you some examples of people who have done this well. Because it's helpful to kind of get your mind around people. Number one, uh, Dave Kraft. He's been here. He's worshipped with us. Dave has been a ministry coach to me for a couple of years now. Dave's 74 years old. Dave worships at a church of largely 20, 30s, and, and maybe early 40s. All right? He's 74. He worships at a church like that that plays music that's way too loud for him. Uh, Wait, totally different style. He's in a Southern gospel. He likes that. That's his deal. And he got on the piano here playing Southern gospel song. Loves that. But he goes to church there, worships every Sunday where he worships with 20 and 30 and 40 year olds. And I asked him, why do you do that? You know what he said to me? He said, because I'm here for the next generation. I'm dying. So I don't want to go out selfishly holding on to what I want. I'm dying and I want to pour into the next generation. I want to be about these these younger kids because they're shaping the rest of the world. And so Dave puts up with it. And he does it joyfully. He doesn't complain about it. He doesn't go up every other Sunday and say, this, you know, music's driving me crazy. He just sits there. All right, number two. How about one of our own, Harold Condor? What a sweet man he is. Harold is a guy who serves our church tirelessly. I'm in my office. He's up there changing lights. He's painting stuff. He painted those stairs. He's painted those stairs three times, I think. They keep wearing out because the paint is just, it just doesn't work. But there's Harold painting those stairs all over again. He comes every Sunday. And I know, I know that our music and worship style is not his deal. All right. But he never complains. He worships Jesus. Let me give you another example. Betty Mae Kaysen. Betty Mae, uh, I'm pretty sure this is not her preferred style of worship. Pretty sure. But Betty Mae is gung-ho about our church and our ministry. She is so enthusiastic about the gospel and our church because she's a gospel Christian. What's driving her is Jesus. What's driving her is a desire to see people saved. I mean, I can't even, she, she'll, I'll, I'll be walking and she'll just block me and say, hey, I got to talk to you. <laughs> and she'll get right up in my grill and tell me, there's a guy here that's never been to church here and you need to talk to him. Why? Because she's concerned about whether or not that guy knows Jesus. She just sat and listened to a worship set she probably didn't understand or get a lot out of. But she's not focused on that. She's focused on Christ. John Frame again says it this way, the worship style that we choose must promote the intelligibility of communication. This is the chief emphasis of 1 Corinthians 14. Intelligibility of communication is 
crucial to the gospel, to the Great Commission, and to the demand of love. Because hear this, love seeks to promote, not impede the progress of the gospel. Now, his principle of contextualization is taught, this principle is taught all through scripture, all right? First, it's directly taught in 1 Corinthians 9, 9, 19 through 23. It's exemplified in the lives of the apostles. You see it clearly in Acts 16 and Acts 18. And hear this one, this is the heavy one. It's tied to the nature of God himself. God is the ultimate contextualizer. Do you know, the incarnation is nothing more than accommodation. God becomes man, He doesn't stay God, just be God. He becomes man and dwells among us. So let's just see where this is taught in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Paul says, turn there, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means... I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, what in the world does Paul mean? I mean, you can see his flexibility. That's obvious. All things to all men. He says that. But what are the limits? There's definitely limits, all right? Because we know Paul's certainly not saying to the adulterer, I become an adulterer. To the, to the pedophile, I become a pedophile. No. To the drunk, no, he's not saying that. So there's clearly some limits. Let me give you three principles and help you understand how I think this has worked out. How, here's the, how, do we, how does Paul show flexibility and faithfulness at the same time? All right? That's what we're talking about. Rooted and relevant. How does he show flexibility and faithfulness at the same time? Three principles. Number one, biblical, being faithful, sorry, being faithful does not mean being indifferent to people. Paul had a passion to win people to Christ. Five times in chapter 9, he refers to winning people, winning people, winning people. If you have any question as to what he means by winning people, then he tells us in verse 22, that I might save some. He's talking about salvation. Now, if Paul's language was not inspired, we might be tempted here to question its appropriateness. Doesn't Paul know that salvation's of the Lord? Doesn't Paul know that his cultural coolness isn't going to save somebody? Doesn't Paul know that being accessible isn't really going to change a guy's heart? Doesn't Paul know that it's God who does the saving and not man? Yeah, I think he does. (laughs) I think Paul knows that. And yet he can still say, I have become all things to all men that by all means who might save some? I might save some. Some. Number two, being faithful does not mean being indifferent to numbers. Paul did not want to win some, he wanted to win many. Verse 19 says, I make myself a servant to all in order that I might win more of them. Now, you may feel uncomfortable with that language. Is Paul more concerned with quantitative growth than with qualitative growth? 
Somebody should have gone up to Paul and encouraged him not to be so focused on numbers and success. I think Paul would tell us that he's being faithful and that his being faithful does not require us to be indifferent to numbers. In fact, the Holy Spirit was not indifferent to numbers in Acts, constantly telling us how the church was growing. Multitudes, Revelation, multitudes, 3,000, 5,000. Luke records how many people were being added to the church. But we also, like Paul, we want to make sure that we're seeing genuine converts. And so, and that's a good principle. It's a good thing, obviously. And so, for this reason, we should be concerned with churches that remove the hard parts of the Bible out of a desire for numbers. That's compromise. Hey, let's do something really, you know, kind of cool. And, and, and we're going to compromise the truth in order to do this. But it's really cool and it's going to bring people in. But we've got to compromise a little truth. But we're still going to do it because it's going to get people in. No, 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 no. That's called, it's selling out. It's wrong and it's cowardly. But hear me, numerical growth is not at odds with a strong commitment to truth. It's possible to preach the whole counsel of God while simultaneously and continually expressing a longing to see sinners saved. And not just a few, but many. Number three. Paul believed that his success in winning people to Jesus was to some degree contingent on his ability to accommodate and contextualize himself to his audience. He did. He believed that. In other words, Paul believed that in certain respects, he needed to become like those he was seeking in order to effectively win them. Notice the language of verse 19. I have made myself a servant to all so that I might win more of them. That's a purpose clause. Henna, it states purpose in order that I became like them I became like them in order to win them. Consider these examples. When Paul was preaching to Jewish people in Antioch of Pisidia, the first place he turns is to the Old Testament scriptures. Why? Because it's filled with Jewish people. So he goes right to the Old Testament scriptures. But when Paul preaches to, uh, in Athens to pagan idol worshipers, where does he turn? Not the Old Testament scriptures. He turns and quotes two pagan poets. Epimenides and Aratus. That's the text he uses. Why? Because he flexes, he contextualizes. Paul is showing over and over again and teaching in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 his willingness to give up his rights and his liberties for the sake of the gospel. We see his gospel flexibility. He gives up his right. What does he give? What rights did Paul give up? Well, number one, a right to have a wife. Number two, a right to earn money through his gospel ministry. Number three, a right to eat meat. That's terrible. <laughs> I, like, I like some meat. I don't want to give up that right. But if I'm going to be with a bunch of vegans at a, at a, at a party, uh, you know, and, and they're going to be offended, I'm not going to bring in a hamburger. I'm not going to go to five guys and be like, hey, guys, you know, eat my hamburger in front of them. It's offensive. If I'm trying to win him to the gospel, that's dumb. I'm not doing that. So he gives up his rights for the sake of the gospel. Are you willing to give up your rights and your preferences for the sake of the gospel? Well, even though Paul's a great example, as I said, he's not the greatest. The greatest example, the ultimate example of accommodation is God himself. You see the gospel at its core is about a man who identified with others for the sake of their salvation. 
Jesus identified with sinners. So I love this. Matthew 4, he's being tempted. He's in the wilderness. What, what, who's he identifying with there? Well, he's actually identifying with Israel of old who wandered around the wilderness living in sin and succumbing to temptation. Jesus is saying, I'm the perfect Israel. I'm the final and ultimate Israel. And I'm going to show you how to be in the wilderness and endure temptation and be successful in it so that I can conquer sin and make a way for you to be saved. He's identifying with his people in short We should follow the example of Jesus. He's the greatest missionary ever to engage culture. He left one culture, the Godhead, and came to another culture and participated in it with with, uh, sinful culture. He participated in it, but he did not sin himself. But he used fully the language of that culture. He participated in the holidays of that culture. He ate certain foods. He drank certain drinks while never crossing the line into sin. Jesus is the perfect model because he engaged culture without falling, hear this, into either the ditch of liberal compromise or the ditch of fundamentalist separation. Mainline churches are liberal compromisers, but fundamentalists are separatist and they make no impact to the gospel. It's a joke. They just do nothing for the gospel. They, they love to make a point, but they make no difference. We don't want to do either one of those. Jesus was a friend of sinners. We should follow his example. So here's where we've been, all right? There's a difference between biblical contextualization and compromise, and we must never, ever, ever compromise the gospel for any reason. But... We must always be willing to accommodate where we can, when we can, and hear this, as far as we can for the good of the gospel. But at the end of the day, for our church to be both rooted and relevant means that we must be willing to flex to win sinners. And yet, hear this, we win them to an inflexible message, to an unchanging gospel. And that's what it means to be rooted and relevant. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have examples of men like Paul who help us navigate these waters without falling off into ditches and making a a, a wreck out of the church. We pray that you would help us to be careful as we navigate, be wise, to be prudent, and to not make foolish decisions. But yet to be large-hearted and generous And to be about the good of the city and the welfare of the city. And to be about the good of other people. And be willing to sacrifice and lay down our preferences and desires for the good of the gospel. Help us, Lord. Help us as we stay anchored to love the history that we have come from. To rejoice in that. To be strong and robust in those things. And at the same time, make a huge impact for Jesus. We ask for your help in these matters. In Jesus' name. Amen.